This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I wanted to welcome everybody, and thank you all for coming to attend our event today. I also want to thank our presenters for taking time out of their really busy schedule to come and talk to us today about this important event. Let's give a big... uh, Thanks to our presenters first for coming out. A special thanks to Amy Williamson for helping me organize this discussion and uh, connect with our speakers to bring them on campus as well. Let's give her a hand. Thank you to the psychology department, the counseling department, and the liberal arts department, too, for uh, supporting us to to bring events like this on campus every year. Um, And uh, also, lastly, let's uh, give a big round of applause to the library staff for setting up this beautiful event. Look at this place. Troy? Again, welcome to our fourth fourth annual Mental Health Month discussion panel. Uh, uh, This year, we wanted to bring... uh, a pretty serious topic on campus, uh, self-injury. It's affecting a lot of our college students, uh, not only here at Moraine, but also across campus. Uh, uh, Our our speakers will probably also speak to the percentages of uh, students that engage in self-harming behavior, but uh, some recent studies show that about 17 17 to 18% of college students do some type of self-harming behavior. So uh, just estimating by the crowd here, 130 people, if statistics are correct, we probably have about 25 to 30 students just in this room right here that have engaged in some type of behavior like that. Moraine Valley has 18,000 students, so we probably have at least 3,000 students here on campus that have done some type of self-harming behavior. So, so seriously, you can see how it's such a big deal. Uh, if I can just get a, just a quick raise of hands, uh, who, who knows somebody that has self-harmed in some way? Okay. It's a lot of people, so hopefully the information that you're going to hear today is going to be beneficial, it's going to be helpful, Uh, it'll uh, answer some questions for you, help you better understand some of the people that are in your lives, uh, but also how to help them when and where they can get help too. So we're going to cover all that stuff today, So, uh, which is why we've asked our panel of experts here to come and educate us on this topic. So uh, I'm going to ask the panelists to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started. Hi, my name is... My name is Dr. Jan Hart. I'm a clinical psychologist practicing in Downers Grove. I also teach part-time at NIU. Um, I did my dissertation from UCLA in self-injury, and I'm lucky enough to actually practice what I did my dissertation in. Um, I work with self-injurers, both adolescent and adults, on a regular basis, and I run groups for self-injurers as well. Malia San, I am a psychiatrist and I'm uh, the department chair at Good Samaritan Hospital as well as um, medical director for uh, shock treatments over there. And I've worked with uh, self-injurers for a long time. Um, I've been attached with the SAFE program, that's a group therapy program for about 10 years uh, until it moved from here. So I have a lot of experience in it, but by no means I'm an expert in it. Thank you for coming today. My name is Anna Coco, and I'm from Moraine Valley's very own counseling center here on campus. 
I've been on campus for about 10 years, and this is certainly an issue that all of us counselors have had experience with as we work with the student population. And around 12.30, we're going to invite two members uh, from uh, the staff of Timberline Knowles and Lamont to come and speak about some treatment issues or treatment uh, uh, options that their facility offers, too. So uh, make sure you guys hang on for that. Okay, so we're going to get started. Then after the panelists uh, share their uh, thoughts and questions, uh, we'd like to have an opportunity to have the students uh, ask questions of the panel. So, all right, so why don't we get started? Uh, Dr. Hart, we're going to uh, start with you, and if uh, if you could tell us just initially, uh, I, I know when we had spoken a couple weeks ago, we talked about, we had asked if you can talk about some of the types of self-injury that are out there, but then you had graciously said, well, I'm going to try to keep it brief, I'm not going to give too much detail, but can you tell us why specifically even that? Well, for self-injuries, actually defining the kind of self-mutilation becomes stimulating, and it actually is a reason to re-self-injure. So keeping it down to self-injurious behavior has been a way of, of keeping people from becoming more impulsive. And so we don't encourage loud words, dramatic words. Um, if you can give us a general idea of what type of self-injury exists in, in a general sense, without being too graphic... Well, it may be different. You're not hearing me. It may be different for both males and females because the kind of self-injury we see in females often would be more on uh, burning, cutting, that kind of thing, where men would be more likely to self-injure by tattooing uh, or more aggressive acts towards the body. So, but there's many other kinds of self-injuries that aren't that would be included. Minor self-injuries. Um, Again, I don't, I'm kind of hesitant to be too graphic because I don't want to give ideas. No, no, definitely. You know, people, you know, not to say that anybody's here to get ideas, but they, you know, <laughs> but, but, but certainly it might uh, stimulate somebody who is a self-injurer. Uh, uh, basically, self-injury involves hurting oneself without the intention of committing suicide, but with the intention of releasing emotions in some fashion, getting rid of uh, pent-up en- energy um, or feelings that one doesn't feel acceptable. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit, a little more, elaborate a little bit if you can, on uh, why does somebody self-injure and what would be the function of self-injury? What would research say or your experiences? Well, my experience is that people self-injure, they are showing me how they feel rather than being able to tell me how they feel, almost as if it's an emotional tantrum only on a more adult level. If my feelings aren't acceptable and I don't want to hurt someone else, then I may go after myself, which is why in particular women are more likely to self-injure simply because women tend to be less aggressive outside men. I don't want to be sexist, but men tend to to be more outwardly aggressive. So women will choose that thinking they're not hurting anyone but themselves by self-injuring and having their anger at self rather than others. Thank you. Are there any signs or or symptoms that uh, individuals show up with that are at risk for self-injury? Signs for the... For the clinician, signs for hmm. for the teacher, signs for... That's a good question. <laughs> well, or for family, for family members, anybody around us, like what would the clinician pick up on? What might family members pick up on? Uh, uh, 
uh, are there any particular ways that the individual presents themselves in, in, in mood and behaviors? Well, actually, they present without a lot of mood or affect. They're more flattened. They probably don't express their feelings as much. And they may seem very passive to the outside world. Or they may on the outside only have one kind of feeling, like they just can be angry, they can just be sad. Um, for the clinician, I would look for people wearing long sleeves a lot of the time or trying to cover up in, in the summer times and whatnot uh, when one would expect to have short sleeves. Okay. Uh, can you tell us anything about, uh, and you may have spoken to this already, um, attending college, going away to college, or any of those things triggers for individuals. And that's when you say what you're looking for, yeah. times of people's life. A self-injury often starts in adolescence, 13 or 14, but it may reemerge right as someone leaves home. That could be going to college, it could be getting married for the first time. So unfortunately, college, if one moves away from the home, is an excellent time for self-injury to reappear in someone's life. Right. So that's something I'd be looking for, too, is the time in someone's life. Okay. Now, I don't know how it would work for a community college. You know, a lot of students here may or may not be living at home. I know uh, uh, some of the research indicates that uh, going away to college tends to be a larger stressor, but I would imagine just being in college in, in and of itself, wow. some people would say it's, you know, it's self-injury, not, you know, not to make jokes. <laughs> see, no one's laughing anyway. Yeah. No, no, but seriously, uh, but maybe just the stress of college in itself, can, you know, I've heard can be... Well, Triggering. another trigger is abandonment. And sometimes when we leave the high school where we were comfortable and we move to another environment, we can feel abandoned by our old friends, not as much as our friends went away to college or whatnot. And you can feel pretty lonely at junior college, too, I think. As far as you can. Um, are, are there any psych, uh, certain psychological disorders where self-injury is more prominent? Well... The only psychological disorder that includes self-injury as part of the DSM-IV is borderline personality disorder um, because it, it's a, a cookbook recipe. I don't know that it's necessarily a disorder in and of itself. Um, so I, I'm not sure that I think it really is a particular personality disorder. I think it's an inability to express feelings and one particular way of doing it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. In your experience working with clients who injure themselves, uh, uh, are there any particular treatment strategies that are uh, more recommended or that you might practice? Well, I wouldn't practice hypnosis. I wouldn't practice um, um, anything that where I start to get out some of my feeling, like hitting pillows and that kind of thing. I would be using talk therapy, cognitive types of therapy, just so that I could get my emotions out a different way than physically showing you my emotions. Okay. DBT would be another. Yeah, dialectical behavioral therapy is mm -hmm. another recommended treatment. Uh, any any suggestions on how one would go about, how a, a clinician might go about uh, helping people prevent injurious types of behaviors? That's a loaded question. Again, being able to express feelings and also being willing to talk to your clients about whether they're doing it or not. I think a lot of clinicians are afraid to actually ask. And people who do it will tell you if you ask them directly, but you have to say, do you self-injure? Have you ever self-injured? So that they feel free to talk about it. So being open about it, mm -hmm. not hiding it, not being afraid to ask. Absolutely. Do you think the client is willing to talk about it? Absolutely. They are? Yeah, most of the time. Okay, so a clinician shouldn't necessarily be afraid to, to ask. One of the things that showed up in my research is that 50% of people who've been in therapy never mentioned to their therapist you guys can't hear. that they were... Yeah. Huh. 
one of the things that turned up in our, our research was that 50% of the people who were coming in to talk about it online and, and in our research project had not told their therapist, and their response was because the therapist hadn't asked them. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, I know there's a lot of misconceptions about people who self-injure. Uh, are, are there any particular misconceptions that uh, you'd be able to diffuse here for us, for our audience? Well, the biggest one is that people who self-injure, um, if you can't see their self-injuries, they're not self-injuring. You would never want to challenge a self-injure. Hey, that's, that's not a good self-injury because I'll go and self-injure some more, and that's not what you want people to do. Um, that people who self-injure um, are necessarily um, psychotic or that there's really anything majorly wrong, they're, they're more likely to just be people who don't express themselves the way they should. Thank you. Anna, I I know uh, when we had been talking just a couple weeks ago in preparation for this panel discussion, you had a really, really, really good question uh, that I I know. I can remember it. We had talked about, you know, how the alcoholic individual is always, well, at least the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous consider that individual always in recovery and always in possible jeopardy of maybe being triggered at some point and we had talked about that you know is the, you know does that work for uh, for self-injury but I'll have you ask the question at me okay well I had actually already asked Dr. Hart this and she had a wonderful answer prepared um, so my question to her was is the self-injure somebody who engages in self-injurious behavior always in recovery? Um, is this something that they always have to fear falling back on years after being treated for uh, this behavior? Um, and I'll let her answer. She she had a wonderful answer. Well, we've tried to to present research to APA using the addictive disorders branch and American Psychological Association does not consider it an addiction because people who stop self-injuring don't always want it. They don't think about it daily. It's something that does go away. Many of my clients who used to self-injure can't remember why they ever self-injured to begin with. So there's no repetition uh, and that makes it not officially an addiction. Or we, It might fall under process addictions, that's what we were thinking, but it doesn't because there's no repetition. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have a little bit of time. Uh, if anybody would like to ask Dr. Uh, Hart a question in the audience, we have a few minutes before we get to our next panelist. Is there anybody who'd like to ask our clinical psychologist a question? I think I see a hand right behind me. Okay. And if you can speak into the mic so everybody can hear you as well. Um, now, you have mentioned how um, people self-injure as a means of expressing themselves where otherwise it won't work. Why is it a method of expressing emotion? I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like self-injury would do anything but hurt myself. Actually, most self-injuries don't feel pain when they self-injure. They're hyped to the point where all they feel is relief, and, and it doesn't, they're not aware of their emotions. It's the closest they can do to expressing an emotion. But I don't think they could tell you what, what emotion they're expressing at the time. But yeah, they actually don't experience it. They're, I'm not sure what, what the physiological thing would be, but they're so hyped up they really don't feel it. Um. Okay, thank you, thank you. Thanks for the good question. Did you have a question as well? behavior, particular behavior, 
happens in one okay my question sure do you find that this particular behavior is predominant in any particular group of individuals in terms of age occupation um, ethnicity anything like that I would say there's more more predominance with females adolescent to college age and I also think there's a high comorbidity with eating disorders with as high as 50-60% of people with self-injury are also experiencing some sort of eating disorder or when they're through with their self-injury will begin to have some sort of eating disorder. Thank you, thank you. Uh, let's give a hand to Dr. Hart so far. Wonderful, wonderful information. Okay, okay. we have another question here, Dr. Hart. Then we need Dr. Hassan as well. I was wondering about the warning signs. Is there a... You know, what are the warning signs? For for parents, friends, yeah. again, probably isolation would be the number one thing I'd be looking for. People who don't want a group, don't want to leave their rooms, or stay to themselves, are more likely to self-injure. Self-injury happens in isolation. It doesn't happen usually in group settings. Okay. So, Dr. Hart, would you also say that if a student's behavior or... Uh, a family member's or a friend's behavior has changed and now they have become more isolative. This could be a warning sign as well? Absolutely. Okay, okay, wonderful. Uh, uh, we have one more question, then we're going to get to Dr. Hassan as well. You were comparing self-injury to alcoholism in regards to like addiction, but wouldn't alcoholism also be a form of self-injury? Absolutely. I'm actually not an eating disorder specialist or self-injury specialist. I'm a self-harm specialist, and there are many ways to self-harm. Alcoholism being one, self-injury being one, eating disorders, bad relationships. There's a lot of ways to self-harm. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insights. Uh, Dr. Hassan, if we can uh, have you up to the microphone, we'll ask you to speak into the mic so everybody can hear you in the back as well. Uh, can you give us some ideas on, uh, if you believe in your experience that people who self-injure, do, do, do they suffer from a biological psychiatric illness? Is there some biological base to that in their illness? Um, According to the psychiatrist, there are two groups of people who self-injure. One has um, a psychotic disorder or mental retardation. That group is there. And there's another group who has more of another comorbid uh, issue for which they self-injure. So usually um, uh, DSM-5 is coming out by American Psychiatric Association. I'm not sure what they are going to label self-injury as. But in DSM-4-TR, um, it is uh, defined under impulse control disorder. And it is by itself not a disorder by itself, but if you are not able to put it into any other slot, that's where we put a non-specified um, disorder in. And um, there are two theories that we do usually think of is the psychodynamic that um, Dr. Hart has already talked about, that they sort of gratify themselves and take control. But the other theory is the neurobiological theory, in which is uh, that we feel that uh, some of the serotonin dysregulation is present. The other part is the there's some dysregulation in the opioid system. And that system is that, that when you say um, people, for example, use narcotics or they use uh, opioids like heroin, they get a high from it. Now when you get a high from it, you tend to do it again and again. And that might be the reasoning that the neurobiologists say that 
that is the that is behind it. So if we block those two pathways, people tend to self-injure less and less. If they are not psychotic or if they are not mentally retarded, because a psychotic and mentally retarded person has different treatment options. But uh, self-injury can go with just about every disorder in um, psychiatry. It could be a co uh, in mood disorders, anxiety disorders. Um, it could be in um, post-traumatic stress disorders. Um, as I said, psychotic disorders. Like schizophrenia, um, for example. Schizophrenics do self-injure. Quite a lot of them self-injure. Schizoaffective patients self-injure because they have mood lability in their mood, so they do that. Um, personality disorders, as Dr. Hart had said, that uh, borderline personality disorder people do that. Bipolar disorder tend to self-injure. Bipolar, you said, right? Yeah, and eating disorders have a high um, percentage of people who self-injure, and actually they sort of uh, exist together in the sense if somebody's eating disorder is actually uh, more prevalent than the self-injury is down. When the self-injury goes up, they have more control. So it's more like about a control in these patients rather than anything else. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful answer. Uh, uh, the other question that we have here is uh, what type of treatment uh, do you practice, if you can share with us, when you treat individuals that self-injure? Usually, depending on what their um, access one diagnosis is, you tend to uh, deal with that and then with the self-injury. Now, biological treatments we have to do, but remember with self-injurious patients, you have to have psychotherapy, which is really very important for these patients because they need to express themselves. So medications, if they're really very acutely um, uh, self-injurious, then you have to use restraints, you have to uh, use uh, behavioral conditioning sometimes, self-help groups like the SAFE group, um, and there are a few on the net that you can practice with. But medication-wise, we usually, as I said, opioid antagonists are used as well as antipsychotics are used, and then um, try to target the basic uh, core problem that if they have, if they're depressed, then you use a serotonin inhibitor. Um, if they are bipolar, use a mood stabilizer along with that. Okay, so, so you would say then that if somebody is self-injuring, that it would be in their best interest to not only seek out a psychiatrist, but also a therapist as well, or a psychologist, or maybe even a psychiatrist who does counseling as well. True, because if, if the psychiatrist is not doing psychotherapy, then you have to have a team, and that support system has to be for that patient. Without that support system, they cannot work. So uh, they, it has to be bimodal in, in any case. Thank you, thank you. Uh, another question regarding treatment and medication. Are there any particular medications in your experiences that tend to work better to help individuals control those types of impulses? Well, uh, FDA hasn't approved any medications for um, self-injurious behavior, but uh, the newer antipsychotics like Risperdal and Abilify have been approved for um, aggression in adolescents, especially with uh, mental retardation or if there's a uh, 
neurological disorder like leash lion syndrome in which they are they compulsively do it kids do self injury for that they have used um, antipsychotics the newer ones like risperdal or abilify has been used um along with uh, there's another there's an opioid receptor blocker called rivia or naltrexone that we usually use with um, naltrexone naltrexone we use it for alcohol um um patient, uh, alcohol dependency patients also so that is also at times used because what it does is it uh, blocks the opioid receptors and when it does block the opioid receptors when you hurt yourself the high that you get out of that the receptors are already blocked so it will not give the high and patients actually feel pain when they self injure so that is one medication that has been used but we don't have stats about how um, beneficial it is for right now interesting thank you thank you let's give dr asana hand as well for her insights I'd like to take one question, one or, one or two questions from the audience for Dr. Hassan because we want to also give uh, ample time to our, uh, our uh, Maureen Valley Counselor, Anna Coco, as well. Um, so is there anybody who has a question for Dr. Hassan, for our psychiatrist? Certainly. Yeah, isn't every disorder basically um, a lifelong battle? usually in psychiatry they are uh, there's no cure for these um disorders they can they can progress from being worse to better and they sort of wax and wane throughout the lifetime so they might need to be managed throughout life usually thank you thank you i have one question that i'm going to ask the the three panelists when when we're finished but we want to give some time to anna as well uh anna is a counselor here at Moraine Valley uh representing the counseling department yes oh we have another question too okay sure hi um in your opinion do people that have demonstrate self injurious behavior only injure themselves or is there a possibility that they will hurt themselves and others usually self injurious behavior is um, according to freud it is depression in depression people turn inwards their aggression so uh, usually it's uh, for self injury but if it if a patient is mentally retarded or psychotic they don't have that boundary between self and others so they do tend to uh, harm others also thank you thank you there was another question we have one more question okay I'm going to come up who's got the question some people say that uh, I know one person who doesn't want to go to like psychiatry because they say it's going to be on their record and it's going to be hard for them to get a job and stuff like that excellent question some people may be afraid to go to a psychiatrist or seek treatment because it's going to be stigmatizing Is that what we're asking? Oh, that yeah, like the job can look at you like you're crazy. Like, you know, you had some psychotic problem in the past or, you know, that's why that's so going to be held against you. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And that can be true. That's why people don't um tend to do that that they go and seek help because they are stigmatized. The only um stigma um it's not a stigma but a precaution by the state of Illinois is that if you go to a psychiatrist and are under treatment at the hospital you can't renew your void card but um on the other hand um firms do have that that you have a prevalent history of being um in a psychiatric unit so they tend to be less and less um 
uh, using the facilities. But uh, we tend to, that's why we are here, so that we can um, spread the education that it's okay to go and seek treatment. Sure. Uh, but then one may also argue, too, that if somebody has a long history of self-injuring and, and violent self-injury, maybe it's in their best benefit not to be able to register for a gun, for example. True. It, especially if they've been hospitalized uh, uh, in they, risk they can't, themselves. They can't register themselves because um, it does ask for mental health history. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jan. Before you move Dr. Hart, on, I'm sorry. sorry. Before you move on, I, she brought up something that I think is really important. Because of the damage to the opioid centers, a lot of times when people stop self-injuring, they don't experience feeling better. They actually feel very flat all the way up to maybe three months. Or empty. And very empty, but they're not seeing a result of, that makes them feel better. So people have to be very patient and realize that having re repetitively hurt themselves has damaged some of their ability to actually feel things without the self-injury. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and if we can ask, um, um, the self-injury types of behaviors with, with, with our students, is this something that the counseling department sees often with Moraine Valley students? And, and not to share any personal info sure. about our students. We want to keep that confidential, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see just about everything in our counseling center, self-injury, uh, self-injurious behavior being one of those things. Nick had mentioned um, a percentage. He said about 17% of college, college students may be engaging in self-injurious behavior. And I have to say that seems fairly low. Um, it seems common, a lot more common than 17%. If, if Moraine Valley is a small sample of what's going on across the country. Yeah. So, so you would estimate that we see more than... I, that would be my estimation from my experience. Okay. Yeah. And I think, um, if I could interject, um, before we got started today, I, I had asked um, our experts, sort of, we were discussing that percentage, and I think what might be happening, exactly like Dr. Hart had explained, we're not asking the right questions. So we may be seeing a lot more working with students who self-injure a lot more than we think, but we're not specifically for, um, asking the question, are you engaging in self-injurious behavior? And, you know, that might be because in a counseling center we're trying to establish trust, and maybe people are afraid to, uh, in a first meeting, ask that question so it can feel threatening yeah it, it can okay it, maybe it shouldn't but it can but I know from what our panelists told us here today one of the best ways to uh, deal with the issue is by directly asking and many times yeah. the clients will openly tell you absolutely that may not be the direct reason of why they're coming to see you that may be an underlying reason yes I would agree with you and sometimes, because we don't do therapy and we wouldn't treat individuals who engage in self-injurious behavior, um, they may mention it to us and it might not. We may be talking about many other issues, um, relationship issues, grief issues, um, and it's, it's just mentioned to us. But it helps us in fitting them with the appropriate helping professional um, when we refer and connect them to a therapist. Very good. This is the question that we wanted to get to as well, uh, that particular topic. So say we have a student that has difficulty with self-injury, and they come to the counseling center. But where, the counseling center, where is it located? The counseling center is located in the S building, the student services building on the second floor. Right on top of registration? Um, it's right on top Close. of admissions. Okay, okay. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so a student comes in. 
having difficulties, what can they expect? What type of assistance might be offered in our counseling center to students, maybe even sure. today? It's really important for me to get this message across to anybody who's out there feeling isolated or who has experienced um, self-injury, either through proxy, you have a family member or a friend who's engaging in this, or you yourself are, that we see all concerns in the counseling center. We welcome any individual to come forward and just tell us your story. We'll look at you as a whole person not just as someone who engages in self-injury, for example. Um, you're a whole person with an individual story. And counseling, when you get connected to a counselor, it's just about telling us your story. And we're here to listen in a safe, confidential environment. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, and, and the question, uh, are there any questions from the audience for our counselor, Anna, for, here at Moraine? Uh, Ali, please come up. Nice and loud. Um, I have a question that for us as a peers, like as students or as a friend, like I get a couple, couple cases, some people come and talk to me about it, like self-injury. Mm -hmm. Sure. What should we do, like as a student, when we have a friends going through something like that, but they're scared to go to counselor or psychiatrist or anything? For us, what's the best thing to do, like? I might, and, and I'll also um, let my fellow panelists speak to that. Um, but I might first, you know, ask them what their fears are. Um, what are their fears in getting connected to a helping professional? Um, because if, if they're coming to you and sharing their story with you, um, they're in pain, there's something bothering them, um, and people who have training are skilled in listening, you know, and, and we know how to not give advice, but um, to connect them with the people who can truly help. Uh, so I would maybe say, what are you afraid of? And maybe let's find out together a little bit more about what the counseling process is or the um, therapy process is about. And sometimes through educating yourself or your friends about that, it becomes less anxiety-producing. It's not as scary. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hassan, um, what advice would you give to family and friends? This is the same question to someone who's self-injuring. Like, do these people need to be... Uh, hospitalized? Is there a certain way to, like, any advice that you can give us? Usually, like, um, the previous question was that how can I deal with a friend who's self-injuring? Um, just to let everybody know that uh, according to um, the HIPAA law, we are, uh, we cannot uh, let anybody else know what your problems are. So we do keep it a very big secret. We cannot divulge any of your therapy sessions or what you're on, the medications, to anybody, even if your employer calls us or even if your mom calls us, we cannot let them know. Um, the only people that you would sign for probably would be the insurance company would be paying for that session so nobody else needs to know um, about if you are going to a psychiatrist or a therapist and what kind of treatment you're taking the only time we do hospitalize a patient who has self-injury is if they're very acutely self-injurious that they've lost a lot of say blood and they need to be in a hospital set, uh, setting, that's when we do that, or they've harmed themselves in such a way that it cannot be taken care of in an outpatient basis. Sometimes 
sometimes people do um, tend to self-injure very um, drastically and that's when we have to send them to the hospital. The other part would be if their primary or core uh, illness is actually acting up like if it's schizophrenic and they are really very psychotic and we cannot deal with them on an outpatient basis. That's when we uh, dis uh, send them to the hospital and usually nowadays hospitalizations are about anywhere between about five to seven days up to sometimes very rarely up to two weeks. Excuse me. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hart. Yeah. I just wanted to add for parents and friends and whatnot, it's okay to have a reaction to the self-injury. It really is upsetting to me that you self-injure. I, I actually am affected by your self-injury. Self-injures often don't realize they have an impact on other people. They're doing it to keep other people from, I'm not going to hit you, I'll hurt me. So letting them know that it does affect you is okay. I mean, not that you're going to, to do something horrible to them, but, but that you are affected and they have an impact on other people. That's really important for them to understand. So it's okay to do that if you're a parent or a counselor or whatnot. I want you to get better. It bothers me you're doing it. That's okay to say. Excellent advice. Uh, I had a question in the back here. Is there any reading reading material or literature that uh, any of the panelists or Dr. Hart, even yourself, would recommend uh, for support? You know, we brought the, one of the books from the SAFE program that both Dr. Son and I worked at called Bodily Harm. And you can get this. Uh, I've heard from the librarian here. You can get this at local libraries, and they will order it for you if, if you're interested in the interbranch library. Another one was Women Who Hurt Themselves by Dusty Miller, and that's another one I would highly recommend. So I'm going to leave these up here, and people can take a look at them, write down, or you can request them through the library. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have a question up front. Okay. Um, you were talking about how um, that they will not be hospitalized unless they do something extreme. But, I mean, one thing I think that we need to have, a, like, we need to understand is that that's not always the case. I mean, there's a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists who will panic and will hospitalize people for that. And on top of that, a lot of self injurers are not going to talk about it because they have um, bad experiences, particularly from high school, where, you know, you get thrown out of school and they say you cannot come back until you have psychiatric clearance. And then you get a paranoid psychiatrist, there's you into a mental hospital, and it, the whole thing just registers as this massive traumatic event that makes you fail a couple of classes and um, that's where I think a lot of people are afraid to say anything because of the things that the mental health system has done to them already and you know the mental hospitals are very funny places because most of the people who are in there don't want to quit in fact they're going to give you advice on how to do it better and it's actually quite funny it's like this big you, you mean the clients or the staff the, the, Clients, I mean, they're, they're going to give you advice on how to do it better. They're going to tell you, like, oh, hey, you did that with a safety thing. You know, if you use a razor blade, you can get it a lot deeper. And, you know, it's just stuff like that goes on in those hospitals so often. All it really is is, like, this big support group for people who don't want to quit. It's actually, um, it's, it's fascinating. Well, that would be interesting for the staff to know about that dynamic to help, you know, either disrupt that or intervene. Because certainly we... No, and I guess I could, and I could probably speak for everybody here on the panel to say that we certainly wouldn't want anybody going to a hospital for enjoyment or to get more ideas. And that can happen. That can happen that you can be in a group where you can get ideas, but um, most of the time the staff is trained to uh, intervene before that happens. But yes, mental health 
Uh, facilities are strange places to be at. I agree with that. We have another question up here. Yeah, for the uh, students here, if they go to the uh, counseling center, is there a record cup to that? Does that go on? Do you, do you keep notes of what's going on? Does the college know about this? Will this become part of my permanent record? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, will the college know about this? Is this a part of my permanent record? While we will keep very brief notes that are locked up every night, that only um, if I'm taking a note, my eyes and the student also has the right to see what I'm writing down. Those are the only two sets of eyes that will look at those. Um, they are purged after two years. They are kept locked up. It is, has nothing to do with the college or your permanent record. So if, if records and registration wanted to see my notes, they cannot. And I don't even have to admit that I'm seeing that student. And we're all bound by confidentiality law, whether you get admitted to a mental hospital or a regular treatment facility or seeing a therapist or a standard psychologist or psychiatrist. It's all bound by law. I want to um, let you know that usually when I get college students, um, mostly what happens is they have either um, the administration has got to know about it because either they have self-injured in front of, of a group or they were boasting about what they self-injured and how they self-injured and the other students panicked and went to the administration. Usually we do get counselors who call us and send patients but that's in between them and us. Administration never steps in until um, it's in public that somebody self-injures. We have a couple more questions and then we're going to finish up our discussion because we want to give the opportunity to uh, our guests from Timberline Knowles to share some of their information as well on the treatment center in Lamont. But uh, Shannon, you had a question and then Colleen, you had a question as well. Nice and loud. Um, I was wondering if um, some of the self, uh, individuals who self-injure <clears throat> seek out relationships and social circles to self-injure with. That's a good question. Yeah, there are websites for people who want to share their kinds of self-injuries. There, there are places to go to group if you really want to continue self-injuring. But in general, what I'm saying is, is that, I mean, in my experience, I, I had somebody in my life that actually sought out relationships to self-injure with somebody else. So is that common? For self-injurers? <laughs> I don't think that's common, but I think finding injurious relationships that hurt me may be a substitute for self-injury. There's a lot of minor self-injuries that people participate in. They don't think of a relationship addiction is a comorbid symptom sometimes with self-injury. But, but the folly I do where two people are hurting each other, I, I think that can happen. I don't think that's common. Thank you. Colleen. Going off of what she was saying, I also know people that were like kind of in groups that they, they did, they all kind of shared their experiences and were very open and very outward about the fact that they were doing whatever kind of self-injury that they were doing. Would you say there's a difference between those groups of people that are very outward and very open about it? I don't want to say attention-seeking, but that's kind of how they were labeled, versus probably clients that you see that are much more inward about it and actually much more keep it to themselves and keep it inside. Would you say there's a difference between those two types of people? 
I, I don't know that there's really a difference, but but I do think that it's contagious. And unfortunately, when you have small groups of you know, like dormitory situations or or adolescent groupings and so, it can spread just like a contagion and become the popular thing to do. But it's still releasing emotions. It's still a way of not connecting with your feelings. Sometimes you do see adolescents who would want to get gain attention and they do, do seek self-injury um, in order to maybe split their parents or get something out of that. But that's sort of a secondary reward that you have. Uh, but I would probably say 99% of the self-injurers are pretty secretive about it and they tend not to do that. And if you think about self-injury as a group affiliation, I pierce my ears to look like other people. There are certain social self-injuries that we accept as being cultural affiliations, right? We have another student back here. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask you to hold on to your question just for a minute. We'll try to get to you right in the end. Uh, and so please hang on to your question. I, I wanted to also give uh, the opportunity to welcome uh, Colleen Kula and Kelly Ryan. Let's give them a hand as well. They join us from Timberline Knowles in Lamont. I'm an admissions coordinator over at Timberline Knowles. We are a residential treatment center for women and adolescent girls suffering from eating disorders, mood disorders, and substance abuse. Many of um, the women that come to us have dual diagnosis. Um, they're suffering from a combination of eating disorders, substance abuse, and or mood disorders. We see a lot of women and adolescent girls who self-injure and um, this young lady up here who made a comment that a lot of self-injures don't want to quit that's that's very true if you think of um, an alcoholic or somebody addicted to substances they don't want to quit but it's it's unhealthy it's an unhealthy coping skills so there are facilities out there to help assist learning better coping skills and better coping mechanisms. And one thing we do at Timberline Knowles is we do do the dialectical behavior therapy. Um, it's a longer term treatment care. It's voluntary. So you, you can leave at any time. Um, and while you're there, you're in a safe environment where you can learn coping skills. And they also said that when people stop engaging, let's say, in self-injury behaviors, they tend to go and engage in maybe their eating disorder behaviors. And we see a lot of that too as well. So there's facilities like ours to keep you in a safe environment, learn the coping skills, and also a lot of these women are dealing with trauma. And um, Colleen can touch base a little bit on that. Um, so thanks. We're really happy to be here today. Um, you know, definitely consider it to be a privilege to be able to, you know, just 
speak out for a few minutes because we feel really passionate um, about what we do, as as we all do. Um, my name is Colleen Kula, as Nick had mentioned. Thanks again. Um, you know, one of the things that, as Kelly mentioned, is people will kind of substitute one unhealthy coping mechanism for another. So one of the things that we do at Timberline is instead of just sort of addressing the symptoms um, themselves, such as, you know, the cutting or, you know, maybe restricting food or um, abusing a substance or maybe a combination on any given day, um, what we try to do is really look at the whole person. And and with regard to trauma, um, probably... 70 plus percent of the females in our program have had some history of trauma. So, you know, it's it's coming from something else, some other pain. Um, because, you know, most of the unhealthy coping skills, and, and it's, you know, it's adaptive. It's, um, you're doing it to avoid some other pain that's, that's occurring, some, you know, emotional pain. So, it you know, in a way it's adaptive, but it's, um, long-term, not, um, you know, even short-term, helpful to many of the things that, that people want to be able to do in their lives and where they want to kind of go with things. So we really take it kind of at day one. Um, we don't say, okay, we're going to, you know, talk about trauma and all these other things on day one, but we really just accept the person where they are. Everybody's at different points. Everyone's, you know, able to open up, you know, at a different pace and, um, and that's okay too, but um, you know we do. We're able to provide an environment. We're you know on 43 acres. We have lakes and trees and woods and all kinds of beautiful sort of serene a setting where people can come and um, you know kind of bond with other people that have had similar experiences. Um, and you know. We, Kelly and I, part of our job is to help people kind of navigate through the financial pieces and the, you know, the pieces that are less fun to sort out so that we can take as much of the burden of that off the family as possible. Um, But I'm really glad that, you know, you're all here. I mean, the more, regardless of whether it's, you know, someone you know who may have struggled with something related in the past or whether it's you, um, you know, having information is always a good thing. Um, We are happy to, you know, to come places and speak. Anyone's welcome to come and tour our facility, again, even if it's, you know, for your sister or your friend, for someone you know, for yourself. Um, You know, it's, we, we want people to know that, you know, all these wonderful professionals are out there you don't have to suffer alone and you know one of our phrases is your secrets keep you sick because that's truly you know to suffer alone and to suffer through this in secrecy we you know one of the things we tell people is you don't have to be alone through any of this when you come into our you know our treatment program you do not have to be alone anymore you've been alone long enough suffering through this so you know just to instill that really strong message of hope um, our medical director is you know a woman in recovery and um, you know really a just a great mentor and leader for us um, at our treatment center and truly just instills that that message of hope 
for, you know, hope and strength for a full recovery, that recovery is possible and it doesn't have to, to stay this way. And, you know, and there's, there's education out there and there's things we can provide and I'm sure, you know, other professionals here. So thank you very much um, for taking the time to, you know, to come and hear us speak today. And if there's, yeah, we have some literature that Kelly has and, and we'd certainly be happy and, um, you know, I don't know how much time, but to answer any questions that anyone might have. Can you share with us once again uh, where Timberline Knolls is located? Thank you. Thank you. Any more mics? It's in uh, Lamont, Illinois, which is um, kind of off of um, 55 and uh, Lamont Road. <laughs> okay, it's 15 minutes away. <laughs> um, and uh, we do, I have some cards and some pamphlets, but our number is, if you guys want to jot it down, um, 630-257-9600. Um, you can also check us out online, TimberlineKnowles.com. And um, you can call in, we can do an assessment and assist you with insurance and, you know, assess if Timberline Knowles is the right place. Thank you. Now, Anna, I know you had also uh, prepared some resources in the, in the local community as well. Can you, can you please share those with the audience as well? Sure. Much better. I should have done that to begin with. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, on our resource list, uh, which is back there on that table, the man with the um, green shirt there, um, I have included Timberline Knowles on that resource list. So if you didn't have a chance to write that website down, it's on there. Also, the Family Institute um, has a sliding scale operation where you have an opportunity to meet with graduate students who are supervised. So if you do not have insurance and are worried about how to connect with a therapist and how to pay for it, um, I ask that you first just come into counseling and we'll help you connect with the person uh, we think is a good fit for you or the organization we think is a good fit for your need. So these sheets, along with our Counseling and Career Development Center pamphlets, are on the back table there. And if there aren't enough for anybody, uh, for enough people in the audience, they can co certainly come to the, to the counseling center and get more? Second floor of the S building, yes. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, we have another question here. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left, so we're going to open it up to questions. And I want to be able to get to everybody, uh, uh, at least uh, anybody who has not asked a question yet. Uh, my question is, you guys talked a lot about the individual who is engaging in self-injury. My question is, do you see that there's a particular family dynamic that is plays out in um, individuals' lives who have engaged in self-injury? And if so, how does that get incorporated into treatment? Good question. Okay, sure. Um, sure, I can absolutely start with that. Um, so, yes, to answer your question, there's um, definitely, you know, first of all, at Timberline Knowles, we're a fairly acute level of care. That's the other thing I, I wanted to mention. If somebody calls us and we're too acute for what someone needs, we, we would make recommendations for lower level of care. But um, history of addiction 
is is very common um, somewhere in the family history, um, as well as just you know possibly anxiety, depression. But we definitely um, you know it's it, it's generally not isolated. Part of that is because most people coming to our treatment center, um, a lot has happened prior to this, so it's you know they're not usually calling just on, upon the first incident of something. So it's usually co-occurring with something else, either an addiction or, you know, depression, other things are going on. Um, and the way that we treat that is that we encourage family to be a part of the healing process through therapy, um, through family. We have a support group once a week for anyone in our program where all families encouraged to be a part of it so that they can understand not only what their loved one is going through, but how to help themselves and, um, you know, to, for them to kind of have that shift as well while their loved one is recovering. Colleen, thank you. Dr. Hart, can you give some insight on that? Maybe if we can detach the microphone. Thank you. On a little less acute level, I, I see a lot of sponge parenting. And what I mean by that are parents that have feelings more than you do. You're upset, they're even more upset. Speak so a little people, into the microphone, so I'm sorry. So people tend to withhold their own emotions so they don't upset their parents. So I see a lot of parent dynamics where the parents don't really um, allow feelings in the household in some way. So I, I would say it's the largest family dynamic that I see. Thank you, thank you. I know there was a question all the way in the back, and uh, the young man back there, want meet me in the middle, if you can. I don't want the uh, cord to break here. Thank you. Um, if somebody is a danger to themselves or the student body as a whole, um, will they be sent to a mental hospital? Like they're like really, really, really acute. Will they be sent sent to one straight from school? And then how do they make up the credits if they are? Uh, I'm not sure about the credit part, but if somebody is acutely homicidal towards the student body or suicidal, they have to be in a safe setting, an environment which can hold them so that that phase passes away. Um, now for the credits, I don't know, but usually I've worked with uh, uh, different colleges and they tend to... Uh, let you uh, either drop the whole course if needed or they do uh, incomplete or sometimes whatever if it's the end of semester I've seen that they let you whatever grade that you have you can go to the next semester um, so uh, I'm not sure how your college is going to react to that but um, the ones that I've worked with have different ways of dealing with that. Anna? I was going to say, if I could speak for how we handle it at Moraine, um, very similar. Um, so safety is a priority not only for the individual, but also for all of the student body. Um, as far as making up the credits, that would obviously be a secondary concern to someone's safety. But we would work with that individual if they were hospitalized when they were released. And we would work with them before they were uh, would be um, coming back to school. And we'd work maybe on a tuition reimbursement and work very closely with the dean of admissions here on campus. So the student is not alone in figuring that out. We completely are by their side for their reentry into Moraine Valley. Also, I know that a big concern is um, people not 
being able to finish their coursework. And we also have an academy at Timberline Knowles, and it's really up to the, the college if they want to allow the student to maybe continue the course online. So we have a young adult program that's 18 to 21 that would allow you to continue with your education. Now, of course, um, treatment comes first in getting you healthy, but we do allow you an opportunity to finish some coursework. Okay, thank you. I think we have a handful more questions. Uh, Dr. Hart, did you want to share with that one? Okay. Nice and loud. I just have a question. I'm just wondering, like, uh, what if people don't get help uh, from self-injury? Do they get to a point where they kill themselves? Because I was watching a show about self-injury, and there was a girl. She used to always only cut herself when, like, uh, she wanted to release pain. But she got to the point where she has to do it every day. Like, every day. If she's happy or not happy, she has to do it. I don't know. I don't think that research would support that they kill themselves, but sometimes accidents can happen. I've had people that have severed uh, nerves and whatnot because of repetition or hurt themselves because of, of infection. But, but no, I don't think it, it's what they call parasuicide. The intent is not to kill oneself. The intent is to release feelings. And certainly accidents can, can always happen when, when you're engaging those types of behaviors. Even the, the sadomasochistic individuals who engage in sexual activities, the, the, the choking behaviors, the bonding of the uh, uh, genitalia and that kind of thing. And uh, Sometimes accidents happen, the safe person's not around, and those things are, are likely to happen. They can. I would encourage you not to do that. <laughs> uh, we had a handful more questions. This young man right here. Yes, uh, what would you do if someone says they would kill themselves? Like, what, what steps would you take or something? Because, you know, that's a big uh, burden, you know. I just that is, that's a big deal. Yes, somebody says that they're going to kill themselves, we call the paramedics ASAP. So they can go to the hospital because safety is the first priority. Um, we do not ask any further questions. Somebody's going to kill themselves, they go to the hospital. That's then the secondary treatment starts. How and why and what? Then that comes later. So, Dr. Hassan, you would even say, even if someone didn't mean that they were going to kill themselves, maybe they just said it, maybe they're just so angry, would you say treatment professionals would, uh, wouldn't take that lightly? Nobody takes that lightly. Nobody does. Even if you jestingly say that to your friends, to your mom, your dad, they should be in a treatment facility because usually when I'm angry, my mind doesn't go to, oh, I'm going to go kill myself. So there's something going on that they've taken that option, even jokingly. Okay. Can I say, too, to address the question? Please, please. Um, if somebody is a friend of somebody who's, if, if somebody's coming to you and saying that to you, it's also appropriate for a student, a friend, a family member to come into counseling and say, you know, I've experienced this. I have a loved one or a friend who is, who has threatened to kill themselves or it's come up more than once or I'm really scared, I'm afraid for their safety. Come in and talk to us and we'll help walk you through that and process that. So you don't have to be alone as the friend either. It's nice to know we have a big support network here at our college. It's a refreshing. We have another question uh, here. Christina? Um, sometimes I wonder if it's um, like something that they can grow out of, something um, that is just if they're at a point in their life that um, they're going through these traumatic incidents, incidents, incidences. And um, like, is it ever like something that you just say, like, try and forget about it, try and put it out of your mind? 
or I mean maybe even they might be trying to seek some kind of attention and not to be unfeeling or anything but it's just always been like a secondary thought in my mind myself so um, I don't know do you want to Anybody can elaborate on that. Dr. Hart? I've had a lot of clients who self-injured when they were younger, but when stressors come back later on, having another child or having a, their first child or increased stress, it may become more primary as a, as a resource for them. So I think it can disappear and reappear if it's not treated. But I, And sometimes I think it can just disappear because people grow healthier, wiser, whatever. But I do think if it's a resource, it's something to be concerned about whenever there's more stressors. Hi. You know, I would kind of along the same lines, um, you know, we've definitely had a lot of cases of people that will say, you know, I self-injured once when I was 11 and now I'm 16 and I haven't self-injured, but they're coming to see us for other reasons. So, you know, it may manifest itself just in another way. So it doesn't, while that one thing may subside, it, it, you know, there may be another manifestation or, as you said, with stressful times it could come up again. Are there any other questions from our audience? Anybody else that did not get an opportunity to ask a question? Eric? Um, in regards to instances that happen at, like, Columbine or Northern, would you say that those individuals did self-harm and it just wasn't doing it for them anymore? Because they end up taking their own lives at the end of it. So is that, like, their way of expressing their pain and then taking the final step? Or would you just say that they are just a sociopath? Good question. Are they related? I wouldn't classify them with anything because we don't know their history, what was going on with them. So, um, but uh, if if somebody's um, violent enough to hurt other people, there must be some pathology going on with them, uh, be it bullying by classmates or uh, problems at work situations where people tend to go and kill other people. So, uh, but there is pathology definitely that needs to be looked. Um, and, and sometimes parents don't know that. The Columbine parents never even suspected that uh, that was going to happen to, that their children were going to do that. So um, there is pathology, but not so out there. Thank you. Hi, I have one more question. Um, is it possible that there are people who engage in self-injurious behavior that don't realize that they are self-injurers? Um, I had a student was asking something about, um, you know, having multiple piercings or things like that and not not looking at it as an injurious behavior is that something that would be looked at differently by professionals even like excessive tattooing if you will it can be taken as that a lot of people have the habit of there's a disorder in uh, psychiatry that's called trichotillomania that means you take pick out your hair and people just sit there while they're studying just pick, pick at one hair or the other and that's actually a disorder uh, that can be treated there are people who pick on their pimples a lot that's self injurious behavior but people just don't realize that that's what they're doing um, just picking at their hair or skin uh, but they say oh no nothing's wrong with me I don't self-injure but those are disorders 
that are actually uh, in the uh, yeah. Would anybody else like to add some insights into that? Dr. Yeah. Hart? Yeah, That's an important question. Right, interference with wound healing. We had a, like 12 different minor self-injuries in our study, and most people don't just do one type of self-injury. And you were talking before about the comorbidity of other things going on. So, yeah, I think it's very possible to self-injure and not even realize that you're self-injuring. It's why you do it that makes the, the difference, not necessarily what you're doing. And if it's repetitive, that's the part that you're looking for. As a symptom. Thank you. Uh, we have another question over here, but you want to add some insights as well. Go right ahead. You know what? I just I, I found it interesting in the research we recently did, kind of an educational presentation on self-injury and intent to harm was, um, you know, a piece of like if for a piercing. You know, we've talked a little bit about getting your ears pierced, different things like that. And excessive when it, you know, when it becomes excessive, um, if. You know, there's some people that get the piercings and tattoos because they sort of like the, the feeling of the pain or like may not be the right word. But um, whereas, so intent to harm was kind of what was bolded all over the research just in terms of, um, of that piece. But, um, but yeah, there's certainly, uh, we've seen a lot of people that, you know, or like they'll start by just scratching with a paper clip and then, and then there's types of self-harm that, you know, we discover all the time that we didn't even, you know, we weren't aware it, it was occurring and, um, you know, just different kinds of, like, burning and cutting and things. And, it, and a lot of people will tell us it started with, like, you know, a paper clip and it got more and more severe. So even just, you know, scratching and things like that is really shouldn't be taken that lightly. Sure. And, and the good thing to know is that there's uh, a lot of treatment out there. I mean, absolutely. Because uh, as it escalates, I guess it becomes more and more concerning. Even at a light level, it's concerning. Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, we had another uh, question right here, young man. Um, I know a little bit about misdiagnosis. I've kind of read into it. And after catching on with some of the comments made by other students here, uh, especially with the young lady here in the front about misdiagnosis and the uh, counselors panicking, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the counselors, they don't get away with this with impunity. Um, I'm... I think that it would only be fair that there there would be some uh, some what do you call it like effect like I think that someone's mixed misdiagnosed for something unfairly without you know a complete and fair evaluation and one of those one of those like incomplete evaluations actually has more of an effect on that student because they weren't heard of, like they might have just had emotions that they just wanted to talk about and they were completely misinterpreted. And uh, I've read on about uh, misdiagnoses and how they could actually lead to that, uh, like to suicidal ideation, to uh, self-injury. What what is what is uh, what is the government or what is or what are these uh, psychology institutions doing about misdiagnoses in uh, schools? Can, can I interject for a minute as to say, of course, a misdiagnosis is going to be a serious issue. Uh, but maybe the question we should also ask uh, is, what can counselors and therapists do to avoid misdiagnosing? Because that is a, so. You're asking what happens, what happens to the therapist when someone's misdiagnosed? Uh, maybe our panel can speak to that. But I think also, you know, for our audience, how, how does a therapist avoid that? And let me say that. 
at the Marine Valley Counseling Center, we don't diagnose anything that is in our role, and I don't want anybody to feel like they're going to walk in and share a story with us, and we're going to label or throw a diagnosis at you. We don't do that. So I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, usually we diagnose people with what they're telling us not with we are suspecting. So they have to come and tell us something that we would diagnose them with. Or their family members would come in and say, this is what the behavior is. That is when we diagnose the patient. We interview you for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, try to evaluate you. Um, if needed, we do extensive psychological testing to see where you're at. That's when we arrive with diagnosis. So our diagnosis is usually based on uh, what you're telling us or not telling us and your family's telling us. So um, uh, I'm not sure uh, where the misdiagnosis would come in. Um, yes, they could be misdiagnosis in the sense that you're self-injuring and somebody says, oh, they're suicidal. That might be it, but that's a safety concern that people have to take into view. Somebody might be self-injuring so much that the family comes and says they're a risk to themselves and next time they self-injure, they might kill themselves. That's when it could be a misdiagnosis. So, Dr. Hassan, are you saying that then after a thorough evaluation of meeting with a client and there is no basis for self-harm, those kind of things wouldn't be diagnosed if there's no basis to it? Correct. I mean, you are going to tell us what we are going to diagnose. I mean, I can't say, okay, you've got pain in your abdomen. Yes, this could. I'm going to go and do a laparoscopy. We can't do that. We only go by what you're telling us and what your symptoms are, or if your family comes back and says, no, the patient is not telling you the truth. This is what they're engaging in. That's when we diagnose you. So clinicians don't just make things up. Try not to. Yeah. Thank you. And Dr. Hart. Illinois is regulated by the Department of Professional Regulation. And if you have a complaint, you can go on the web, and they will take your complaints and talk to you. Anyone can register a complaint. Oh, sorry. But, yeah, we, it isn't that we're not governed. And each individual organization, like psychologists, psychiatrists, also have a board of ethics that govern what we do as well. But the most important thing in my mind is to get a good level of care because if you're not getting an appropriate level of care and you're using someone, and I'm not just a college counselor, but, but if it needs more more treatment, then you want the appropriate level of care. But you're not, if you're not subject to whatever we say. If you have a complaint, there's a way to take care of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big, big, big round of applause to our panelists. for coming out and giving their perspective. Once again, thank you for, to all of you for coming out and spending the afternoon uh, hearing this panel. Hope, hopefully you didn't miss any classes. Again, thanks to Amy, the psych department, and liberal arts, and the library. You guys are wonderful. This is uh, very, very good. Thank you once again. Let's give them a hand again. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.